6, uh, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer in the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorius, and Nicanor, and Timion, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this display of the Holy Spirit's work in the church. And we thank you as it teaches us what we should look like, what this church should be built upon. If we are built upon Jesus Christ and his word and the work of the Holy Spirit, may it be, Father, that you would manifest yourself in the continuance of this fruit throughout your people so that your word will continue to increase and then the number of your disciples would be multiplied throughout this community and throughout this land. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sorry if I sound like I'm talking a little bit with a lisp today. Lydia brought me this fireball home from work yesterday, and I was sucking on it when I was getting ready this morning, and my tongue is all swollen kind of funny. <laughs> so if I sound a little funnier than usual, it's not some kind of new accent that I'm trying to, to take on. It's because my tongue is kind of messed up. So <laughs> I need not to do that anymore. I just wanted to explain myself a little bit. Sometimes I, I react to things and I'm having one of those reactions right now. As we continue in the book of Acts, um, this continues to match the, the, the pace and the theme of what the Lord is doing in his church. As he pours out his spirit upon the church, we see things being particularly highlighted and magnified. And you, and you see these outlined very quickly in Acts 2, that there is this proclamation and understanding of his word um, that's spreading out throughout the whole world and that is driving together his people or drawing together his people. And then there's a response 
There's a response to the people as the work of God's word and the work of his spirit is exploding in the church, which is a fulfillment of the prophecy of God's word and a fulfillment of the work that was done by the Son of God, the word of God, as he is risen from the dead and now ascended and sitting at the right hand of the Father. So as we look at this particular passage, again, we have to remember, and I just want to remind you, that these are just random events of what a church would look like or what a church could do. These are extraordinary foundations to the beginning of God's church that are extraordinary, but also they're very much implying to us what the nature of the church should look like. And so if we are absent, not necessarily the extraordinary nature of what is going on here, but the principles and the purposes of what is going on here, then we have to really ask ourselves, are we involved in the church? Are we a part of this apostolic movement that Christ has established over 2,000 years ago? Today, we're going to be looking at the what is the beginning of a, the diaconal ministry. Now, not so much the beginning of service in the church, not so much the beginning of a type of uh, work that needs to be done, but the organization of, for the new church of a particular office of deacon. This is the foundation passage that we go back to to see what they did when they started forming a diaconate in the Christian church. But there's not just a, this is not just a how-to This is a how it happened and why it happened and how to understand it in light of what God is doing as he fulfills his work and what he has promised he would do amongst his people. We're going to be looking at three particular parts of this passage. And for some reason, P's are just the the word to go to when you're thinking about um, the three-point sermon. Here in this case, we're going to be looking at the priority of purpose of the diaconate, which is the marrying of the word and service of the church. We're also going to be looking at the process of how it came about when this was established and why it was established. And we're going to be looking at its main point, which is the proclamation, the proclamation of the increase of the word in the growth and multiplication of the disciples. Here in this particular passage, we have a circumstance And it's an amazing thing in the Lord's providence how a circumstance is going to be a building of the church and and also a teaching for the church that will last generationally from then until now until, until Jesus returns. This is a thematic teaching for us on how to understand what we should be about. It says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. It would be very much a natural thing that as God's people gather together and we desire to worship and to serve together, that one of the motivating things that's going to occur is going to be a complaint. So this is, can be a, um, a display of just the nature of what it's like for human beings when they come together. Or it can be also an encouragement to us that complaints are not necessarily a bad thing. Now, I don't like 
to receive complaints. I don't like for people to complain about me. I don't like to hear people complain. I do sometimes like to complain, but none of us really like to be on the receiving end of a complaint. But a complaint is typically an indication that something is amiss. There's either, at minimum, an amiss of someone's perspective, but in many cases, if people are at least humbly seeking to be faithful, a complaint can be a very encouraging and strengthening component to the body of Christ. So, when we look at this passage, may it be something that we are reminded of whenever we hear a complaint. Like when we have our, um, our particular uh, congregational meetings, you know what that feeling is like when someone wants to say something negative. You know, I know when people come and talk to me, they may say, Charles, you said this, you shouldn't have said this, or Charles, your sermon was extremely long. Some people have actually, believe it or not, celebrate my long sermons. And I'm not going to tell you who they are because I don't want you to try to encourage them to leave the church. Uh, (laughs) But those are helpful. They're hard, but they're helpful. Here we have in this situation a complaint rose up amongst the Hellenists. Now the Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jews. And the complaint is against the Hebrews, which are the Jewish-speaking Jews, <laughs> they're, they're, they're of the people who are from Israel, and they are different. They're a distinct group, but they are brought together here because of the Holy Spirit, because of the explosion of God's work in the church. People are being brought together. We don't know a lot of detail. Commentators say that there's likely because there is automatically this sectarian posture toward one another, that it's possible that the Greek-speaking Jews, that their particular widows were being neglected due to some kind of prejudice. There's not any certainty of that, but this is, it's assuming that that's probably likely, just like we have here a complaint, which is showing an indication of who we are as a people, that there's likely, even though God is bringing those people together, there's still going to be these little things that we assume upon each other and and prejudices that we'll have and likely in some reason for some purposes it may have been just logistical it may have just been timing it may have not even been based upon sin at all that these particular widows were being neglected and so right off the bat in this very first verse we see that it's helpful that one that there is diversity in the church how God's path brought people to a different, from a different path into a singular location of a worship of a single God and a single hope in Jesus Christ. But that as those things happen, that the natural human distinctions and prejudices or differences might bring about a particular posture toward how the complaints are given, but that it is good to hear People complain if it's done for the proper purpose of building up the church. Now, we know automatically in the first five chapters of Acts that caring for one another is a primary focus of the church. It's not the primary focus 
of the church, but it is a primary act. It is an important and necessary act that you see always sistered up. There in Acts 2, they were devoted in word and prayer, and they were devoted to caring for one another. Those things come hand in hand. Here we have a continuance of that, but a practical application to how to deal with those things according to the providence and the calling and the sovereignty of God. It says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples together. And this was, from what the commentators are saying, it was the, the, the church, the disciples, all the people together, and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. These two particular verses are telling us two very important things about the nature of the church. That one, what is a primary priority of the calling of the church is the word of God. Now, they didn't just shrug off the necessary need to take care of the widows in the church, but they make a very strong point here that it is important that their particular calling as apostles in establishing the church is to foremost be preaching the word of God. Now, this is extremely important for us to understand. There is a continual battle in our culture, and I think it's a battle that's from Satan, that this gets minimized in our understanding. That it is very much a movement in our culture, and it probably always has been, that benevolence, somehow or another, is preached to be the primary focus of the church. Now, it's a difficult thing not to fall off of either side of that horse. Either time you fall off of that, you're no longer established either in the word or true benevolence. Here is a masterful, ordained by God, anointed by God's response to how to view the ministry of the church. It is first to understand that we cannot ever, that it is not right, it is not good, it is not holy for us to ever neglect the preaching of the word of God as the ministry of Jesus Christ. Whenever that is absent, we are automatically going to be on the opposite end of that. It is bad that we would neglect, that we would not put the time and the focus toward that. But the masterfulness of this is that there is a means in which God has appointed us to view the church to take care of this and that it is an important part of the leadership of the church to uh, have among them people who are leading in service in the church, in leading and caring for those in the church. Now, this is not a new thing. This is not a new way of doing things for God's people. It is a simplified way of seeing it, but we see this 
in the Old Testament. We see it in two different ways. One, we see in the posture of God's proclamation throughout his word, particularly in his law and in his psalms and in his prophecies, that he is very much postured toward the needy, the poor, the destitute. And this is not just a process and work of God. This is the heart of God and the nature of God toward his creation and particularly toward his people. But we also see that he commands specific ways to assure that those things, that those people get taken care of throughout his means. He actually creates laws to teach us how to do those things. But he also has offices. We have the office of priests. And we also have the office of the Levite. Now, all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. And it's, I put some references passages for you there in Leviticus or Numbers to see those type of distinctions. But you see that there were, the Levites had a particular calling to care for the, the church structure, to sing psalms to the people of God, to guard the temple from people going beyond and going into the Holy of Holies. But they had, they had a particular office of focus. And, all, and often the Levites were put into a class that is very much described as being with those who are without inheritance. Those who are often without. Um, for some reason in God's providence, he did that maybe to give them a posture toward these people. An understanding of what the nature of the gospel would look like. So here we have the highlighting that the preaching of the word is the primary calling of the church. But there is no severance of what that will look like when it comes to how it would serve the people. We've already heard a passage that David read there in James indicating to us that we cannot have one without the other. And here we have a continuance that we have as primary the preaching of God's word, but it has to be associated with the service toward his people and the care for those who are without. And the people were pleased by this. They were pleased by this response. And we see this highlight that it says, we will devote ourselves to prayer in the ministry of the word. That is why today as we are now a couple of thousand years removed from this, we've been able to ascertain from this particular passage and through some of the epistles like in Timothy that there, these particular offices have a particular focus. And we see here and highlighted, this is why for elders and pastors is to be focused primarily in word and prayer. Because not everyone has the same kind of giftings Not everybody has the ability to take care of everything at all times. But as we are unified as a church, some people are going to have a particular focus based upon their giftings to be focused more on word and prayer. And others are going to be focused in service based upon their calling and what God has put together. We also see here that we see a process, that there is a process amongst The people, the people are observing the life. They're observing what God has done, the deeds of God being manifested through the people. There is an examination, in a sense. 
by viewing these people that are of good repute. And what does it say here that these people should be the people that they're picking? What are some of the things to be looking for? One, their reputation should be consistent with the law and the calling of the gospel. And they should be full of the spirit and of wisdom. What does it mean to be full of the spirit? What does it mean to be those of wisdom? What does it mean to be those who are of good repute? What is going to be the defining standard of knowing what that looks like? I'm going to take a pause for a second. And I'm going to ask you to think about what, just as a, a reality of where we are in the state today. I, can't, I was trying to remember, and I was supposed to look it up before I came in, and I forgot. Um, what is that uh, one saint that a lot of people consider the saint of, like, um, animals and, and things like that? I'm talking about the um, I can't, or Saint Francis of Assisus, right? And there's a particular popular phrase that a lot of people attribute to him. Does anybody know what that particular phrase is? Right, like preach the gospel, but use words when necessary. Now, they've researched that, and they don't really know if he actually said that. But people like that, and you see it on bumper stickers. You see it in different, proclaimed in different ways. People like that. One, because we know by talking to people that words can be annoying. <laughs> you know, people get tired of listening to people. You'll probably get tired of listening to me, that the words that we talk often are in, in, interwoven with our heart, and therefore words can be painful to listen to because it's a reminder of sin in many different ways. And so we tend to kind of gravitate and like that idea. Preach the gospel, but sometimes use words. Well, when we think about the nature of the gospel, the gospel is good news. It is very much about the word of God. And I believe that that particular phrase is overused and definitely out of context to what is the nature of the the, the church and the ministry of the church. But if you think about it, we tend to look at that as a noble thing. Now, just as we've read in James, we don't want people who are all about words and no action, but there is a place today in our culture or a movement today in our culture where people find as a very noble thing to be very heavy about highlighting certain actions apart from the word. But what we have here, that in the very ministry, the very diaconate ministry calling, is that these are people who are one of good repute. How do we measure what is good repute? Is that based upon our own opinions about what is good and what is bad? Where do we go to determine what is right and wrong? You can answer that. Where do we go? The Word of God. Is full of the Spirit. How are we going to be able to test the spirits? Where do we go to determine what is of the Holy Spirit and what is of demonic spirits? The Word of God. And it says of wisdom. To be people who are of wisdom. Now, wisdom can be based upon knowledge mixed with experience and understanding and application. And there's all kinds of wisdom. And we see in the New Testament the calling of there's the wisdom of the world. 
And then there's the wisdom of God. And it's actually a, a kind of mocking it, even calling it the wisdom of the world, because anything that goes against the wisdom of God is foolishness. So where do we go to determine who is truly wise? We go to the word of God. And so here, even in this description of this diaconate ministry, we must be focused on people who are trusting and living and showing fruit that is according to the word of God. And the only way we're going to be able to know that is that if we are in the word of God. It is true that words can be annoying and irritating, and our words are very much interlaced with sin, but God's word is pure and holy and righteous. The only times our words are good is when it is pointing to or referencing or celebrating and praising the word of God. The gospel is the preaching of the word of God. And for these people who are called to be serving the people who are suffering, they need to be people who are of the word of God. And so therefore we are called to pick out among us and examine, are these those who are good repute, full of spirit and wisdom, and then they are going to be appointed. They're going to be given an office. They're going to be given a recognition and a calling to be serving in this way. This is an organized means. What is another thing that you hear in addition to people saying, well, it's more important to have works and not word? You also hear that it is more important that... Oh, lost my notes here. Oh, I think I got ahead of myself. Hold on just one second. I got distracted and I got off my where I was at here. That a lot of times an organized church is not an organic church. And if it's an organized church, there seems to be some kind of diminished mindset toward it. You hear people saying, well, I'm, I am a man of faith or I'm a believer or I'm a Christian. I'm just against organized religion. That's a pretty common thing that I run into when I talk to people in the public. I'll say, hey, you know, I've noticed you're wearing a cross. You know, is, are you a Christian or is that just something you like to wear? Oh, no, no, I'm a Christian. I'm, you know, just, I said, well, where do you go to church? And they'll say, well, I'm just, I'm just not into organized religion. Well, here we have God giving us through example and through instruction. And then we have later on, as this gets fleshed out even further through the epistles, we have an organized calling. God desires that his ministry of his church is done in an organized way. One, this teaches us about the character of God. He is a God of order. But it's not just teaching us about his character. It's teaching us about his desire and his requirement for us that as we are organized and gathered together, to serve the Lord and to proclaim his name, that they will have an organized process. This is all interwoven in this that is implicit and direct to us that God is a God of order. And how he would like for that to happen is through the movement of the Holy Spirit enlightening the people. That it is God is wanting to show forth his deeds and his might through the movement 
of the Holy Spirit in bringing to light God's word and his truth and his desire by how they respond when they observe the men in their presence. He wants them to see the gifts that he has put upon them. He's wanting to see the work that he's put upon them when they are manifesting their obedience in the fruit of the Spirit in their faithfulness. This is a way that God gets glory. This is a desire for him that when we are having a business meeting, when hopefully sometime in the near future, when we have a calling of more officers in this church, that that particular work is a movement of the Holy Spirit. What people in our society are often gravitated to is something that's kind of spontaneous, something that is extraordinary and loud, the mundaneness of a business meeting where people are contemplating, well, I know this particular guy, and I've seen him in his life. We need someone like him who has this gifting. One, he is, he is faithful. He has shown in his life that he is a faithful servant of God. And I see in his character the, the fruit of the Spirit and how he makes decisions in his home or in his business or even helping in the church already for whatever season of time, I have seen he has been tested to be one who is manifesting godly wisdom in his life. When we see that, when we meditate upon that, it's not to draw us to worship and celebrate the particular individual. It's for us to to acknowledge and to see the work of the Holy Spirit being done in the church. You know, a lot of people say that Presbyterian type people, you know, are kind of cold and away from the movement of the Spirit. Well, according to how the Scripture describes the work of the Holy Spirit, that is very much a work of the Holy Spirit to organize his people together and to make a proclamation that this individual seems to be manifesting the fruits of service and should be called to help lead his church to proclaim the word and the love of the law throughout the people in the church and throughout their community. That is a movement of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't seem like something that we want to get all excited about and jump up and down. That seems mundane organization. But when we look at what's going on in the the region today, think about what's just happened in this past week. As we continue to see the things that are occurring in Afghanistan, as we see what has happened to Louisiana as Ida came through all the way up into the New England states, one of the things that you see if you're reading the news or if you're connected on social media to the things that are of Christian nature, you see the devastation and the despair of the people But then often what you see alongside of that are ministries that have been prepared, that have been thinking about this. People who have been praying about how can we be ready to help people when they're in their time of desperation. They've appointed people. They've organized ministries. They've got structures with people with different roles and different offices. And they have a network of different people who are ready to enact and to jump in on the those particular situations to help people in need. Those are not just spontaneous. 
Those are things that God has been working in, and you see it particularly in our nation, though there are other nations too that are very benevolent in that way. But if you look and if you dig down layer by layer throughout history, you will see that these, came, these people came from a people who were submitted to the word of God. And it bore forth certain fruit. And it brought forth certain kind of organizations. And those organizations are able to get places to places very quickly. One of us, and some of us, we, we really are supporters of Samaritan's Purse. And we, every Christmas, you know, we put together these Christmas boxes. But if you look, they, these people were organized. They're in Afghanistan and in Louisiana. I was driving to Nashville two weeks ago with Knox, and we stopped at a rest area. There was a Samaritan's Purse truck on the way to a town right outside of Nashville where 20 people died from a flood. There's no way that that can just be spontaneous. That it'd just be waiting around, that we're just going to sit around and wait for those kind of things to happen. God calls us to be meditating in a certain way upon his word and upon his people and to be looking for those gifts and then putting those people before the Lord and before the people and appointing them for action. We too, in our small congregation, as we've talked about just last Sunday with our congregational meeting, we know we need more leadership. I met with Scott and, and, and um, Jonathan a year and a half ago, and we were talking about what the next six months to a year would look like, and I said we need to be praying that God would raise up leaders amongst us or he would send them to us. It's a part of the ministry of the church to be in the word and prayer, but then to be also contemplating and organizing the work of the ministry of the church. It says that as they did this, they had particular people that are giving names. We think about these specific people. Next week we'll be focusing on Stephen, and we'll be looking at the character of Stephen. We'll be looking at the actions of Stephen. We can go further along and we'll see Philip later on and we'll see what he's doing. One of the things that you'll notice about these two particular men, Philip and Stephen, is that their ministry is interwoven heavily, heavily with the proclamation of the word of God. And then it says something unique here for us that's We know this in the church and we've seen it happen, but it's still kind of an interesting thing for us. In verse 6 it says, These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. When you look throughout the scriptures, laying hands on people have a a very diverse meaning to it. I, I know when I'm sometimes working amongst um, contractors, sometimes I'll, some of the, the more country folks of the contractors um, that I work with, when they're getting all riled up about a certain situation, they'll say, don't, don't you make me lay hands on you. Now, you know, coming from my Presbyterian background, I, I'm not assuming that he's getting ready to appoint authority upon someone for the ministry of God's work. What, what, or what, are, what is he saying when he says, don't, let, don't make me lay your hands on you, or what's, what's, he, what's he saying he's going to do? He's getting ready to hurt somebody. Well, the scriptures, that's a very much a scriptural um, way of looking at it. There are things throughout the Old Testament that we see where laying your hands on someone means that you're about to hurt someone. 
That's been at least the English translation of different things that are in, in the Hebrew in the Old Testament. You also see when people are laying hands on one another that they're blessing them. That they're transferring, they're, they're doing this visual transfer of asking that the Lord would be doing something for this person. When my children, at night, when I go around and I tell them goodnight, sometimes it may be kind of an awkward place for me to be able to give them a hug. I'll just lay my hand on them and I'll, I'll sometimes just simply say, may the Lord bless and keep you when we are in a place where this is, it's not a good time just to have a long prayer. It's a symbol of passing on something. If you go back to the references that I put in the reference sheet, if you go back to the Numbers passage about the, the Levites, you'll see that God's people were called to pick out amongst the people and separate the Levites, and God's people put their hands upon them to represent that these people are representing us and that we approve of them and we approve of God's means in which he's doing amongst his people. But it's also that these people are representing their sin, because those Levites then go and they put their hands upon the sacrificial animals, saying that they're carrying over the sins of the people and placing them upon the sacrificial animals. We see Jesus, when he goes throughout the Gospels, he places his hands upon people when he heals them. We see him placing his hands upon children as he's talking about how they are a blessing and how we should bless them. Here we see the laying of on the hands of showing this approval and this transfer that is giving them authority to carry out this ministry in the church. This is what God likes to do. This is something that's God's desire for his church to practice, and that's why we do it. That's why when we sometimes get together and pray for a particular individual in the church, we lay our hands on them. But when we are also, when we have those called to be officers, that is why other officers come and they lay their hands on them and it appoints them. It, it, in a sense, it anoints them to the calling of their particular giftings to the ministry of the church. So it's important for us to look at what they were doing here. It's important for us not to do it just as an example, but that we do it because this is what God desires and it's a continuation of the Old Testament ministry a continuation of the gospel ministry, and it is a continuation of the church ministry today. And then we see here, lastly, the very purpose of all of this is that the word of God would continue to increase, and that the numbers of the disciples would be multiplied. I put into the back there some reference passages, and I didn't want to take the time to go into all of those passages, and I pray that you will take the time to read them. But I want you to look particularly at John 13, in John 14. And what you'll see in John 13, you have the, the famous quote that Jesus has in there. He says that you will know them by their love for one another. When we think about who we are as a church, there should be a manifestation of fruit that as the world is examining us, that we should be known as a people who are full of love toward one another and toward the people in our community. It should be a defining mark of who we are. If you look at John 14, it defines what that love will look like. It says that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's interwoven, again, with the word of God. 
That's why it's so important that when the apostles are being given this complaint about a need that is in their church, that they don't neglect and say, well, it's more important for us to preach. We're not going to really worry about that. We're going to let that happen organically. That they do highlight, though, that we can only do this we can only love these people if we are continuing to understand the love of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They put the word back in front, not because that's just something that they're doing. It's because that is what Jesus defined is what love should look like. If you go to 1 Timothy 3 and you look at the qualifications of the elders and the deacons, you will see the same description that surely came from what we have here in Acts and what we have in the Gospel and what we have throughout the Old Testament. It says that these men should be full of faith. These deacons that we call to the service should be full of faith. What does that mean? Well, today people say that I have faith in God. I have faith in Jesus Christ. And they do not know the Word of God. You ask them, do you know about this particular passage? Or do you know what this says in God's Word? And it says, ah, people will say, I don't know, but you know, I don't think God, the God I want to worship wouldn't be a God that would do this or that. That's a pretty common reference. They're making conclusions to what justice is based upon their perspective. What they're ultimately doing is that they're shaping God into their own image of what they believe. When it says full of faith there in Timothy, it's not just saying people who go around and say, oh yeah, I believe in God, or I trust that God's going to help me with this situation or that situation. It means that are people who are trusting God's word and God's proclamations, God's promises, trusting what God has done and what he is going to do in the church. These are men who are full of hope in the word of of God. And then it concludes there in 1 Timothy 3 with almost a, a little mini confession of faith. And you see that all of this has been brought together so that the church would know how to behave. That's how it actually says it there in the English Standard Version in 1 Timothy 3. That God gave us these things so we would know how to behave. That we would know how to love. That we would know how to serve. And then it says there at the very end, so that he would be proclaimed, that his name would be proclaimed. Here we see a fruit of that obedience that God's people coming together and focusing on the word of God. It says because of that, the word of God continued to increase and the number of his disciples multiplied so much that the display of obedience of the apostles and disciples brought forth the very priest, many of the priests who had been persecuting and being antagonists to the church, it says that they became obedient to the faith. If I leave anything with you today, let it be those last four words in that particular section of this chapter, obedient to the faith. Our faith is not absent from the works as the book of James says. But our faith should be in obedience. But obedience to what? Obedience to the Word of God. 
in John 13, when Jesus is explaining to the disciples that they should know you by your love. And if you love me, there in John 14, you'll keep my commandments. That is all prefaced by something that Jesus was doing. It says that as it was coming to pass that it was time for Jesus to go to the cross. It, all the teaching was about to be wrapped up and he was about to go to the cross. It says that he guarded himself as a servant to wash the disciples' feet. It unnerved Peter that he would do such a thing. And I wonder as a church, are we unnerved when we think about our God being not just prophet, not just priest and king, but have we ever thought about Jesus being the deacon? He is the chief deacon. He is the the chief servant. He has made himself the lowest of the low. And as the cross was in view and it was time for him to go to the cross, one of the last things he did is that he girded himself ready for service to wash the feet of the disciples that were under him. And he says, you have to do this. You have to, one, be washed by me. And you have to wash one another. We cannot proclaim the gospel unless we see Jesus Christ as the chief deacon of his church. We want him to be the chief deacon because if he's not the chief deacon, we don't have anyone to wash all of us, as Peter said. Just wash me whole from head to toe. But if we are not manifesting that in our lives to one another, it's an indication that maybe we don't feel like we need to be washed. We're in the Beatitudes in the men's breakfast study. It says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are, you could easily say, blessed are those who are servants to those in the church. For they will be served by the king of kings. He serves this table to us so that the gospel will be proclaimed. It is so crucial for us to understand the marriage of those because our mercy depends upon it. We are in a society and in an age where we live in abundance. It's easy for us maybe not easy for some as others to cut a check to someone who is hurting or in need. But do we submit ourselves to one another to be serving in our fullness, in our conversation, in our time spent, in our prayers? Do we reach out like we want God to reach out to us? Do we want God to just take care of us financially? Some of us may do. But I think many of us in our hearts, we know that we need God to care for us in our hearts. So are we postured toward the hearts of one another? As we come to this table, it is called communion. Communion in the body of Christ. And as I've mentioned before, we cannot come to this table without discerning the whole body. If you come to this table 
seeking that it will be a means of grace to you in your own life. You can only do so if we come together pleading out to God to be merciful to us all. Let us come together in mercy because for those who grant mercy, we shall receive his mercy. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word.